Good morning, everyone, and I encourage you to get your Bible and open it, if you will, and follow along with us. We're going to look at multiple passages of Scripture today, and so uh, I encourage you to get your Bible. It's interactive, and you praying and seeking the Lord and asking God to speak to your heart, letting God's Word uh, dwell in your life, and uh, God's got a word for you today and for me today. Don't you believe that? He does. He has a word for all of us today. We're in today's gospel. We're in the gospel according to Mark. We're discovering the real Jesus today and thinking about what was the real Jesus like and what was he claiming and what does this gospel of Mark have to say about the real Jesus, not the Jesus that the world tells us about or the Jesus that is uh, the narrative and the, uh, the, uh, the message that the world proclaims about who Jesus is. But what's the Bible say about who Jesus really is? And notice with me today, we're going to look at uh, Mark's gospel and beginning with chapter number two is where we'll read in just a moment. A couple of things concerning the real Jesus. He was declared the son of God. That's the way Mark begins his gospel. He was declared by the words the words of the prophets, the words of the disciples, the words of John the Baptist, the words of the voice out of heaven at Jesus' baptism from the Father, the words of even demons confessing that he's the Son of God, the words of Jesus himself, the words of Peter, the words of Thomas, the words of the centurion, and the whole balance of the gospel message, declaring that he is the Son of God. That's who he is. But also his works, not just words, demonstrated by the very works that Jesus did. His authority, his authority to forgive sin, his authority over demons, his authority over disease, his authority over nature, his authority over Sabbath and tradition, his authority over death. And we're going to look at some of those today. And today's message is about Jesus' claim of authority over the Sabbath day and the traditions of the elders. Now look with me today in your Bible to Mark's gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse number 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the disciples were saying to him, look, why are, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not law for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, listen, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Amen. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Amen. In chapter number 3, beginning verse 1, again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. He looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Wow. As we look at this today, first of all, notice Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. Now, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was instituted by the Lord. It is a, the word Sabbath means to cease, to desist, to rest, to focus, to stop working. Sabbath is the cessation of normal work and setting aside of a day of rest that God has designed. And, and it's, it's, while not, the word Sabbath is not in the Genesis narrative. We see God's resting in creation. He created six days, and on the seventh day, he did what? He rested, which is a root word for the word for Sabbath. And so it's distinguished as different than all of the other days because on that day, the Lord rested. In Exodus chapter 31, describing what Jesus, what God did in creation, it says he ceased from labor and he was refreshed. Now, it's not like God ran out of energy on the sixth day and needed to rest. But instead, it was a day that marked a resting. And it was a an example for us that there should be a day of rest. In the book of Job, which may be one of the oldest books in all of the Bible, we find there that Job on the seventh day rested. On the seventh day, he worshiped and offered sacrifices for his children and for his own sin because it was a day of worship and a day of rest. We find the idea of Sabbath also with the children of Israel as they've left Egypt in Exodus chapter 16. You remember the story how they had no food and they griped and grumbled. Has God brought us out of this wilderness that we might die of starvation? And God says, and Moses cries out to God in prayer and God says, I'm going to provide for you. And he says, in the morning when you get up, the, the ground will be covered with wafer-like food. Flakes of food that you can pick up. They are, they are, uh, they'll be called manna. What, the word manna means, what is it? And uh, it says it will cover the ground, manna. And, and so, so the next morning, here are the rules about it. You are to pick it up, but just enough for each day. Amen. Don't pick it up for the next day. And the truth, what he's teaching us is you need to trust God every day for what he will supply for you. And of course, they were typical Baptists, and they decided that they're going to gather more for the next day. Guess what happened to that manna? Rotted, and worms filled it, and it was no good, and they had to throw it out. 
But on the next day, they went out and there was fresh manna for a fresh day because God's presence was with them. And so they would pick it up. But one other rule that he gave them, on the sixth day, you pick up extra. And on the seventh day, you do not go out. But of course, some hard-headed fools went out and looked on the seventh day, but there was no manna on the seventh day. Why none on the seventh? Because on the seventh day, you were to rest and trust in God. The giving of manna, the collection, was, and the rest. But then when God gives the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, he blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy, it says. You have your Bible, you can look with me to Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse number 8. Do you have your Bible? You need to bring your Bible when you come to church. Learn how to use it. Learn how to use it. Some of you carried it on your phone. That's good. I like mine leather bound, actually. Exodus chapter number 20. Listen to what the scripture says in this concerning the Sabbath day. In verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, the word holy means it's set apart. It's special. It's different. It's not like any other day. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea that is all in the, that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what he's saying is it is a special day that God rested on that day and it's to be special for you. It's to be a blessing in your life is to be a blessing to your servants and to your children. It's not a day of normal work. It's a good gift for man given by God to us. And as you observe the Sabbath, it brings blessings into your life as you're obedient to Him. Isaiah promises the very same thing. Listen, the book of Isaiah, chapter number 56, chapter 56 beginning with verse number 2. It says, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord, and these are immigrants that have joined the children of Israel. The Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I'll give my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. And I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. He says, even immigrants that join you and, and, and foreigners that join you and eunuchs that join you, they will be sons and daughters as they worship me and keep Sabbath with me. Wow. Verse 6 says, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and love the name of the Lord, 
to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. A distinguishing mark of the children of Israel is that they kept Sabbath. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable my offering on my altar. For my house, listen, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Listen, God wants to bless the world. He's given the Sabbath as an identification of his covenant people. And his blessing are those who obey him. Amen. But there was a corruption of Sabbath that began to take place. When did this corruption begin to happen? Well, the prophets warned against profaning Sabbath, ignoring this good gift that God had given to us. But during the exile, while the children of Israel were taken captivity and taken into Persia, there began to develop not only as the synagogue as a meeting place and not the temple, but then a gradual legalism began to be taught. And there was this minutia of observance and uh, the, the raising up of Pharisees and these legal experts and scribes. And they began to put exacting legalism on the Sabbath. There were two different schools of this legalism. There was the Shabbat and the Eruban. And, and they were instructing them on all the Sabbath laws and how they had to be observed. And they made all of these lists, the lists of what you could do or what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. John R. Sampey, professor of Old Testament at Southern Seminary many years ago, wrote there were 39 classes of prohibition actions. And there was much hair splitting in its detail. Elaborate details about actions that were permitted on the Sabbath, actions that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And just before the Christian era, the coming of Christ, he said there was a flood tide of controversy concerning Sabbath day laws. And Jesus is confronting this legalism in his ministry. Sampi said the, the rabbis seemed to think that the Sabbath was an end in itself an institution to which the pious Israelite must subject all of his personal interests. In other words, man was made for the Sabbath. But Jesus is is, has a conflict with the scribes about this. And he's helping us to understand that the Sabbath was given by God. And it was a good thing. Notice in Mark's gospel, chapter number two, it happened he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, here comes the controversy. And as he's going along, his disciples are with him, and they're hungry. They've come in from Judea. They're coming back to, uh, uh, to the Galilee. And as they do, they come through some grain fields, and the disciples pulled some of the grain heads off, rubbed it, taking the husk off, and leaving the grain and then they, they ate some of the grain. Oh, they've broken the Sabbath. That's what the, the lawyers and the scribes and the legalists, that couldn't stand Jesus. And they're watching him closely, and they begin to criticize. Notice in verse number 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? What was unlawful? 
They said that the scripture tells us that we can't harvest on the Sabbath day. And your men plucked some grains off and took out a little, they had a granola snack and we saw it and they've broken the Sabbath. Mm. And so they're accusing them as being lawbreakers and defiling the Sabbath. So Jesus tells a story. Jesus said, don't you remember what it says in the Old Testament about King David? King David and his men were running from Saul, king, the king of Israel's hot pursuit, because Saul was intimidated by David, this young warrior hero that someday would be named king of Israel. And as they're fleeing Saul, they come to the uh, Abiathar, the priest, and, and they ask if he had any food or nourishment. They were hungry. And he said, all I have is the bread of the presence. This story is found in 1 Samuel 21. And he said, every day, bread was baked and put into the tabernacle as a, 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 called the bread of presence, representing God's presence in the temple. And he says, and every day that, then at the end of the day, that was removed and fresh warm bread was taken back in the temple. It was not to be eaten. It was a, an act of worship. And David said, if that's all you have, well, we'll eat that. And while they technically broke the law, God did not condemn them when they ate that bread because the king and his men were in need and that superseded what the law was. And Jesus says, how much greater is, am I? Because I'm not just the future king of Israel. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And I created the Sabbath. Amen. One greater than David is here. And then he tells them, you don't understand Sabbath. Sabbath was given for men. Sabbath was given for your blessing. Sabbath was given for your life. Sabbath was given so you connect with God. Sabbath was given so that you might be sustained spiritually and emotionally. Sabbath is not about legalism, but legalism perverts God's good intention for Sabbath. So the Sabbath, if you're taking notes, was given by God. It was given for men, but the Sabbath was also given for good. For good. Now, in the next story, we find in chapter number three, he enters a synagogue. That's the setting. And this is the, like church. It was the place of assembly where they would gather together and hear instruction and teaching. And there was a man there who had a withered hand. And so it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on Sabbath along with his disciples. And when they, they had saw this man, and maybe it was a setup, but this man had a hand. It was disformed and withered. And they're watching to see if Jesus would heal him. Verse 2. And they were watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Why were they watching? So they might accuse him. There in their heart was a way to accuse Jesus of being a, being a lawbreaker. So what does Jesus do? He says to the man, come here and stand in front of me. And then the man comes and stands there right in front of Jesus. And then he asks a question to these scribes and Pharisees. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? 
To give life or to kill? Guess what they said? Nothing. That's the way critics are. They're quiet so they can criticize you later. Amen? And looking around them in anger, Jesus hates this kind of legalism. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart. They've made it about rules. Let me tell you what, when your religion is about rules, your heart will get hard and far from God. Amen. He said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out his hand and he was restored. What did the Pharisees and those do? Immediately they thought about a way to get together and destroy him. You say, Brother Tim, boy, they sure were legalistic and closed-minded. Oh, my friends, how that creeps into our lives. Amen. My first pastorate, there was a, in the second year, there was a church, next to the church, there was a house that was grown up with weeds. The man was not able to care for his home and some of the young boys and young and youth were looking for a mission project and they decided they were going to cut down the weeds and clean up around the house and mow the yard and make it look nice and bless this guy. Everybody worked in our church, so Sunday afternoon they organized and went to work. They mowed the grass, pulled the weeds, cleaned up the landscape and blessed that man. We had one deacon in the church, and he was a stickler for rules, and he came to see me. He said, Pastor, we don't mow grass on the Lord's Day. And this is the Lord's Day. I don't know what you're teaching these children. I said, well, I think we're teaching them to love Jesus and love other people. But he couldn't see that because it's the Lord's Day. We had a new convert in the church, and she said, man, I got a lot to do. I got to get home. I got laundry to do. And one of the older women said, uh, <clears throat> we don't wash clothes on the Lord's Day. Getting quiet in here. In Luke's Gospel, chapter number 13, Jesus in the synagogue teaching there's a woman there, there she's, she's been suffering for 18 years, bent over. And he touches the woman and he says, woman, you are freed from your sickness. He laid hands on her and immediately she stood up right again and the pain was gone from her back. Anybody ever had back pain, crippling back pain in your life? It's horrible. And he set her free. For 18 years she suffered. And the official that ran the synagogue was indignant with Jesus. And he said, six days there are to work. You can come during one of those days and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. Does not each of you untie an ox or donkey from the stall and take them to get water or food on every Sabbath day? And this woman's been bound by Satan for 18 years. 
And she's a daughter of Abraham. And now she's been released on the Sabbath from bondage. In the 14th chapter of Luke, a similar Sabbath story, a conflict. Jesus is invited to the home of one of the Sanhedrin officials. And there's a man there invited also with dropsy, which is a terrible disease of suffering, probably a a kidney or liver disease causing the retention of water and swelling and great pain in his life. And he speaks to the scribes and the lawyers, and he says, is it lawful to heal or not on the Sabbath? Again, they're silent. They won't say. But he brings them in front of him and heals him. He said, which one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well? You wouldn't immediately get him out even on the Sabbath. Isn't this man's life worth much more than an animal? Wow. So he confronts this, and he's saying in this passage of Scripture, he's saying you don't understand the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given for men. And Jesus is also claiming that he governs the Sabbath. He says the Son of Man, that's Jesus' self-designation. Verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not the Sabbath, man for the Sabbath, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus has authority. This is what he's saying. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath laws because Jesus gave the law. He's the lawgiver himself. He rules over the law. He's Lord over the Sabbath law. He gave those laws for you, for a blessing, for his glory. He loves you. And he cares about you more than a bunch of rules. He has authority over the Sabbath. Amen. What a good God that we have. Next, he takes on the traditions of men. He has authority over those traditions as well. Now look with me to the seventh chapter of Mark. This is a long passage. I want you to look at it with me. Mark chapter 7 beginning with verse number 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered together with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. This is ceremonial washing. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of elders. And when they came from the the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, get ready, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, listen, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then he says, For Moses said, 
honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, meaning given to God, then you're no longer, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, listen, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? It enters not his heart, but his stomach and then expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He said, you hypocrite. Notice the traditions of men. These Pharisees and scribes, they are criticizing Jesus' disciples because they don't wash their hands the way, according to the elders and the scribes said, you should wash them. Don't get the wrong picture here. Don't get the picture that the disciples had filthy, dirty hands, and folks were saying, ooh, why are you eating before you wash your hands? That is not the deal. It was not about cleanliness. It was about ceremonial washing of the hand. It was an oral tradition of the elders. It was not scripture, but it was this oral tradition and teaching of the scribes. It was called oral tradition, not written scripture, but it was the oral word, and it was to be legally binding. It was an extrapolation of what Moses had taught in the law. And so they said, you wash with handfuls, with the fist, literally, and you take water with a fist in a cup, and you have to pour it a certain way over your hands in order to be ceremonial clean. And you had to be sure and put that basin out there in public so everybody could see that you were following the law with great particular, particular care. It's kind of like a ceremonial ritual. Do we do perfunctory stuff? Sometimes we do. Ritualistic things that have lost meaning. We grew up teaching in our home, and I grew up in a home that was taught you don't eat until you've said a blessing. If you're not careful, it becomes a ritual, not a meaningful prayer. Mm. So we don't pray before we, we, we do pray before we eat. 
It's like one little kid said, do you pray before you eat? He said, we don't have to. My mom's a good cook. And so anyway, uh, and so uh, <clears throat> it can become meaningless. I remember my cousins and I, man, the food was ready. It's time to eat. And who's going to pray? And we'd just say something like, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Let's eat. And, and it didn't mean anything. It was just a ritual that we went through. You know what I'm talking about? And so these things are culturally conditioned. That's the first point. They're not the word. They're about a culture. You go to the marketplace, and if you've been in the marketplace, you've become contaminated. And now when you come back, you've got to wash yourself a certain way to decontaminate from being in the marketplace. That's what the scribes taught. It was a way to wash your hands. In Israel today, when I take folks to trips to Israel, they still have a ceremonial washing of hands. And so outside the doors to the restaurant, not inside, but on the outside, there has to be a sink, and that sink was there with water. And it's not the sinks in the bathroom. That won't do because people can't see that you're doing it. So they do the sinks outside in the lobby so everybody can see that you've washed a certain way your hands because you want to be legally right not a health thing. And let me tell you, secondly, it's a cultural thing, but secondly, it is, it fosters pride and condemnation. That's the next point. It fosters pride and condemnation. Notice in Mark's gospel, chapter seven, in verse number five, the scribes and Pharisees ask him, why do your disciples not walk, live, according to the tradition of the elders, and eat their bread with ceremonially, ceremonial, impure hands. Hmm. Why do they not keep the traditions of the elders? You see, the truth of the matter is, they take these traditions and they use them to condemn other people. It's a way to condemn others as sinners because they're not compliant Jews. It was a way to judge others, lift yourself up, and put somebody else down. And that's what legalism will do every time. Traditions and judgmentalism. Oh, I still fight against it myself all the time. I grew up with certain things you just do and you don't do. My dad drilled this into me like a drill sergeant. You don't wear a hat in a building. Amen. <laughs> That's not the word of God. But it was a word in the Lewis household. <laughs> we grew up in the same house. <laughs> Take your cap off when you go into church. You tuck your shirt tail in. My dad said, son, where are you going? Get that shirt tail tucked in. What are people going to think how I raised you up? Now shirt tails are out. Christy says, why you got that tucked in? You look old. <laughs> well, I am old. <laughs> Thanks, brother. We had other rules, too. No tattoos. Only exceptions. If you were in the military, you could have a tattoo when you came home. Especially in Navy. 
or if you're in a biker gang, or if you've been to prison. Other than that, no tattoos. <laughs> and piercings? Mm, mm, nah, mm, no. You get your ears pierced, and eh, you've... You're, heading, you're getting over on the dark side. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? Amen. Legalistic stuff. No alcohol. We don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. <laughs> now, it wasn't true when Dad pastored in Kentucky because... Half our congregation raised tobacco, and so we didn't preach against cigarettes or cigars or chewing because all the deacons stood out on the front porch of the church and smoked between services in Sunday school, preferably without filters, so we could spit that tobacco off. But when we moved to Illinois, that was part of the law, no tobacco. And if you saw somebody that had a beer or a glass of wine, then they've backslidden. They might be lost. Certainly they're carnal. We need to pray for their soul. Now, in other cultures, they have their own. For instance, if you go to Bulgaria, if you don't wear your head coverings just right, you're not walking with God, women. In Romania, you can't wear jewelry at all, especially, other than your wedding ring, and especially no necklaces. We bought a Romanian pastor's wife a nice, delicate little cross that would hang around her neck. And she goes, oh, it's beautiful, but I can't wear that. They'll think I've become a loose woman. It's the cross! But it's cultural. It's cultural. Let me tell you one other thing about it. It, not, it brings judgmentalism into your life. It brings death. But it adds to the commandments. Verse number seven. You teach as doctrines the precepts of men. You've neglected the command of God. What is the command of God? The command of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God's not interested in everything that you eat or everything you drink or what you're wearing. God, he doesn't care about your tattoos. He cares about your heart. Amen. That you know him. That love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. Amen. This is the command that God wants. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And we've added legalism. And it supplants the gospel of Jesus. It moves the gospel of Jesus. It, 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 it brings a barrier to the gospel. You're experts at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your tradition. Verse number 9. Verse number 13. You've invalidated the word of God by your traditions you've handed down. And so many other things such as that that you do. That you think that right standing is based on rules and traditions and laws. But the truth of the matter is we're all sinners and none of us can earn our way into heaven. Amen. The truth of the matter is 
All are lawbreakers. The truth of the matter is there's none righteous, no, not one. The truth of the matter is all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned away. The truth of the matter is without Jesus, we're all lost and going to hell. But God loves us. And he sent his son to die for us. We all need a savior. Legalism brings death. Love brings life. The Spirit of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. Lest any man should boast. Mm-hmm. Went to preaching, didn't I? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Verse number 21. It distracts from the real important heart issues. Verse 21 Listen to Jesus' words closely. For from within, out of the heart, proceed the things that defile you. Evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. Pride, arrogance, foolishness. These evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's not food or drink you take into your body that defiles you. That goes not into your heart, into your stomach. And it goes out the back door. You eliminate it. But what defiles you is what's in your heart. It comes out. It comes out in your words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words matter because your words reveal your heart. If you're negative, critical, judgmental of others, that just tells me that the hardness of your own heart. Out of the heart, the callousness and coldness and uncaring for people. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, negative thoughts about others. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Covetousness. That's in the Decalogue, right? You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. That's because sin is in our heart. Wickedness and envy and slander and pride and arrogance and foolishness. They're in our heart. This is, Jesus is saying, the real issue is not to focus on food. The real issue is not to focus on how you wash your hands. The real issue is not to focus on that stuff. The real issue is to focus on what's in your heart that's wrong. And repent of your sin and turn to God and let him change your heart. From a heart of stone. To a heart of flesh. This comes by abiding in Jesus Christ. Trusting in him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him. The same brings forth what? Much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. What is the fruit? It's the fruit of the life of God's Spirit dwelling in your heart. 
In the book of Galatians, chapter number 5. Do you have your Bible? Galatians, chapter 5. Listen closely. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit. Let's walk by the Spirit. Let's not become boastful, but challenging one another, or challenging one another, or envying one another. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, that is what God is looking for in your life. What does God want to see in you? That's a real question here, isn't it? What is it that God wants to see in you? What's God want to see in Tim? What's God want to see in this church? Can I tell you what he wants to see? He wants to see the life of his son radiating in your life. That's what he wants to see. Not your rules. Not your tradition, not your judgmentalism. He wants to see the life of Jesus in you. And that means dying to self, dying to legalism, and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Master and King. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have you done it? Have you come to know him? Let's pray.